Welcome to the show. This is Daniel Workman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call in all time zones in between and around the world. Welcome into the show. It's Tuesday, April 30th, and uh, it's a big day today. Big, big day today because we kick off the semifinals of the UEFA Champions League. And um, it, it's it's not necessarily the match that some are anticipating waiting for, which is tomorrow's match between my two favorite clubs, my all-time favorite, Barcelona, and then my favorite Premier League club, Liverpool. But today is is the match between Ajax and Tottenham. And it's going to be a, um, a, a an interesting back and forth. Uh, Tottenham is a team that, that wants to play with the ball and, the, and, and, they, and they attempt to play, you know, a version of positional play, Wego de Posicion, a, a version of that. I, w- I would not say that they're full out, you know, Pep Guardiola, Esque, but they're definitely more in that mold of trying to keep possession and 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 play with the ball as much as possible, and and then you've got Ajax, which have basically uh, reborn as total football again. Uh, incredible young players, one of which is already Barcelona bound. There's another, their captain, who's also really young in in Delit. That is. Um, you know, rumored to be Barcelona bound. We can only, for those of us who are Barcelona supporters, can only hope that that is the case. Um, but uh, the you you have these two clubs that have, have kind of been overlooked coming into the semifinals. Uh, you 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 know you have all the conversations surrounding you know Suarez and Coutinho, two former Liverpool players playing with Barcelona. And then, you know, obviously you, you, you have the greatest of all time, um, Messi, that's in playing for Barcelona in this match. I mean, you, you have that kind of story. But I think the Ajax and the, and the uh, Tottenham uh, tie is, is definitely being overlooked. Uh, and, and, and I understand why. But I, I want to take a, a minute and kind of look at some things about Ajax specifically and, and celebrate some of the things that are going on. I, I've had the privilege of being in Holland and, and being at Ajax's training center and and watching some of their youth teams train and play and and kind of take in that environment. And 
And then now to be able to kind of watch what, uh, you know, this team has been able to accomplish so far through the Champions League, through the group stages, knockout rounds, now into the semifinals, uh, it, it is, it's, it's been a pleasure to watch. But one of the things that I think we, we miss that we're overlooking in this Ajax uh, club is, is it's easy to kind of look beyond, um, you know, the realities of, of building that club. So that club um, is, is not built the same way that a Premier League club is built, meaning that in the Premier League, there, there's so much cash from TV and from commercial deals, etc., that clubs, even relegated clubs, are bringing in revenues beyond what Ajax has at their fingertips. So they have the, the executives at, at Ajax have been building this club from within they have been developing players they have been identifying players bringing them into their club developing playing them young molding the core of this group and and have been doing so without splashing major cash now they they brought in you know a couple players here and there but by and large it's all it's all been part of this youth movement and in this youth movement you're seeing some some incredibly brave play, creative play, intelligent play, total football in in, in many ways from from players all over the field. De Jong, they lit some others that are just moving the ball around positionally, doing some really really uh, great things. Um, if you watch the the matchup between uh, Real Madrid and Ajax, you, you got to see at the Bernabeu just an incredible display of of Ajax's team and team spirit and belief in, in, in their identity. And that's the big test. Um, when, you, when you are a club and you go to, you know, you go on the road, you go into the, your, your opponent's, you know, home, backyard, stadium, whatever, however you want to look at it, and, and yet you have the belief and the courage to play your game despite the, the pressure, despite the fact that you're not at home, maybe you're not as comfortable, yet you're willing to do it, and not only willing, but able to execute it. Uh, that, was, that was definitely um, a really, really, really amazing thing to see, and, and it's not something that you see that often, especially in the top levels of European uh, European football, that that you see a club be brave enough to go on the road and still play the way that they want to play. Many times you see pragmatism where you'll hear the terms parking the bus and you'll hear other things like being conservative, sitting back, etc. and they're and they're 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 waiting to to try to counter or they're they're hoping to absorb pressure, etc. And yet Ajax was came into to the Bernabeu with the opposite mentality. We're going to play. And that that is that is one of the the elements of of an independent club structure in league structure and competition structure that is so important. It's what we are missing in American soccer. By not having independent clubs, 
be able to to build their own identity, not be constrained by centralized control, uh, a la MLS and in in Major League Soccer and their their front office. MLS ha- has the ability to veto player acquisitions, player tra- uh, transfers. There, there's all kinds of elements where where Major League Soccer and Don Garber can basically tell you how to run your team and 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 limit you in terms of what you can spend or where you can go to get your talent. I mean, there's all of these constraints. There's these, you know, I, I like to say, you know, they, they have their TAM, GAM, CAM, SPAM, whatever rules, right, that, that they're always putting in place these, these limitations where they're trying to create kind of an Americanized structure around the game of soccer, the game of football, the, the real global game of football and and it and it hurts us it hurts us because if our top league is so controlled if our top league ha- has has an the an inability to build independent individual innovative clubs and teams and and talent and and teams that are are able to create their own unique identity based on you know maybe where they're where they're from based on you know who who founded the club etc we miss uh, stories like this we miss stories like Ajax rising to the semifinals of the Champions League many are predicting that they're going to make it to the finals of the Champions League and 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 then you miss stories like Ibar in Spain Burnmouth in England these these clubs that you know, by any measure in America would never get a chance. They would never get an opportunity to, to play first division football in America. Ajax m- might would have a chance, but the sad state of affairs in, in America is that even though Amsterdam, you know, is a city of a million plus, it, there, are, there are cities larger than Amsterdam in America that don't have first division soccer and not only do they not have first division soccer because of our system and our rules they don't have a chance to have first division soccer unless they find someone to pay off the other major league soccer owners i.e. the franchise fee just to get in that money is not going back into the game it's not going back into into developing soccer or building a club that money is being paid out to the other owners to join their franchise system. It's a payout to the franchise owners. It doesn't go back to the players. It doesn't go back into the clubs. It goes into the owners' pockets. That is, that is, those are elements that we're missing in terms of looking at what Ajax has done. They, they have gone out and they have found players. They have developed players. They have built an incredible group, this squad, that has been capable of building all the way into the the semifinals of the Champions League, and 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 yet here in the U.S. that would not be possible. Ajax would not be permitted in our system uh, without getting through the system of gatekeepers, and that's the element that that we have to understand. It's why things have to change. It's why things need to be better. It's not about bashing Major League Soccer to bash Major League Soccer. It's not about being critical to be critical of the United States Soccer Federation. 
the, the point here is not that U.S. soccer and MLS are, are, are just the, the enemy and we just have to defeat them and destroy them and burn them to the ground. And I know there are a lot of people that, that want that. For me, that's, that has never been the motivator for me. That has never been the way that I view our issues here in America. The way I view our issues here in the U.S. is that there are things we're doing that, that right now that are not beneficial for the game. And if, and if we want to do things that are beneficial for the game, and if we want to, to essentially you know, follow JFK's example and put a man on the moon, or in the case of American soccer, become the greatest soccer country on earth, then we need to change some of the things that we are doing. Those changes include governance with the Federation. They include how we handle the treatment of independent clubs and giving them a, a bigger, better and stronger voice within the Federation. But it also means that our system and structure of competition needs to change, that we need a connected system of leagues that literally turns the light on for access and opportunity to every community in this country. That's the real job of the Federation. They get caught up doing other things. Their main priority should be ensuring that there is fair and equal access and opportunity to a connected system of leagues around the country. And that's not the business they're in. That's not the business they have been doing for years, for decades. They've never done that duty. And and failing to do that duty has hurt American soccer. And so that's the piece that I look at. And, and that's it, it's not to say, hey, burn everything down. It's to say, we can do better. We should be doing better. Everyone is going to benefit when we work together, when we are all connected into one system. We can better leverage our clubs, our teams across states, across cities, up and down the connected system of leagues, also known as a pyramid. And in doing that, everything improves access to development, access to opportunity, access to to play at the highest level now becomes a real thing for any kid in America. Now we have incentives for clubs to develop players, incentives for for players to develop themselves. They want to reach the highest levels of the game, coaches, etc. I mean it just everything builds and in watching what IX has done has has really been uh, great to see and and I hope that we Take inspiration from IAX as we um, as we learn and watch and see what they're doing through this season in, in the semifinals and seeing what um, you know what they uh, hopefully uh, do today in terms of su- success with uh, with playing Tottenham here in the semifinals and and hopefully that inspires some change and progress within U.S. soccer. Today's sponsor is Charity Water. Charity Water provides clean drinking water to people all over the world. They are regularly providing access and opportunity to people to to not only get clean drinking water, but it changes their lives. It gives them the opportunity to seek out education, betterment for their communities, etc. If you don't know about Charity Water, check them out at charitywater.org. पहिला म पनि बच्चा अवस्थामा रहँदाखेरि मैले मैले यो कल्पना गरेको थिएँ कि 
तर अहिलेको बच्चाहरुलाई मैले सोध्दाखेरि अथवा उनीहरुको क्लासमा गएर तिमी के भन्ने भनेर भन्दाखेरि उनीहरु बच्चाहरुले एक क्लास दुई क्लास तीन तीन क्लास गरे बच्चाहरुले उनीहरुले सहजै रुपमा चाहिँ उपयुक्त गर्न Welcome back to the show. Joining us now is Dave Larba, the executive director of West Virginia Soccer Association. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, that's West by God, Virginia. West by God, Virginia Soccer Association. I I miss those uh, initials. In in the uh, in in looking everything up and, and researching for the show, so I'll make sure I go back and and look those up and make sure those get included from now on. That's good. So so Dave, tell tell us um, you've been involved in in soccer and in West Virginia soccer for for a long time. Tell us a little bit how how did you get started? What what kind of started your interest and and um, you know, desire to kind of get involved and, and work within the game? Well, basically, I grew up in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, in, uh, and, uh, in high school in the, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Soccer was just uh, coming around, and there was a little bit of club soccer, uh, but soccer really wasn't a, a big sport. Uh, in most of that area. I moved to West Virginia to go to college. Um, and West Virginia Wesleyan had uh, a you know, good, good college soccer. And in the, uh, the kind of devil's triangle of West Virginia Wesleyan, Davidson Elkins, and Allison Broadus, there was some good small college soccer. So I got, got to watch that. Uh, then you know, get married, move to a different part of the state, have some, have some kids, and my my oldest son came home. He was eight with a little piece of paper that was probably an inch wide and, you know, a, a page length wide that said soccer signups for the wide soccer uh, Saturday at whatever. And he said, can I go? 
Well, I would, I, sometimes I wish I would have said no <laughs> because it started a um, it, it started a, an odyssey. This was in the very early 80s. And uh, so he went and signed up. And just like a lot of people that are involved in the grassroots level, uh, I did you know, I hadn't had a lot of any experience really in soccer, but um, they needed some help. They needed coaches and, um, and, you know, a couple of us, just like a lot of parents do, maybe said, hey, you know, our, our team isn't getting the kind of uh, help it should get and what's going on. And they said, yeah, you know, you're right. So uh, you two guys are now in charge. And it was, you know, basically telling us put up a shut up. So we, we left the Y, went to the library, took out every book on soccer, which was three of them, and got the old Coca-Cola reel-to-reel Pele movie on soccer. And that's how we started. And there's a lot of people in this country that started that way out, you know, not in the big cities and where there was a lot of, of soccer going on. And it just kind of evolved. I went through licensing. I ended up getting a D license. Um, and this is before I gained you know a couple hundred pounds and um just started getting along and then i you know again with the state association i was representing the local association and had some questions had some concerns next thing you know i'm in charge of something and um it just started in the in the uh, early uh, mid 80s and it evolved to being an officer of the board being president and then after my term of president in uh, 1994, becoming uh, becoming the first executive director, and um, the rest, uh, I guess, is history. So you you get involved and and you work your way from the grassroots into state level kind of leadership, and then to running the state, and then now serving as the executive director since 1994 take us back to to the to the 80s what was soccer like in west virginia in terms of organizationally was there a strong association was it kind of still really green and you guys were just figuring it out like what was the landscape like there in the 80s the landscape in the 80s was was soccer in west virginia was new um there were a few pockets in the Charleston area, in the Morgantown area that had hospitals and that had industries that would maybe bring people from other countries, other cultures into the state that had a, uh, a lifelong history of soccer. Uh, and so soccer started to spread. As I said before, there was some really good small college soccer in, in West Virginia. And so there, there, there was a kind of a, a, a background there uh, but then soccer just, you know, started taking hold in the small communities, you know, and again, this is, this is a rural state. Um, you know, it's a big American football and a big basketball state. Those are the, you know, those are the sports that are king. And so you have that problem of, Hey, you're trying to bring a communist sport into the, into this God fearing state of West Virginia. And so you, you have to fight those battles. Um, but just by perseverance and, and education, uh, that that was um, was overcome. There, there wasn't a lot of competitive soccer at that time. There wasn't high school soccer, so 
in the by the late 80s, um, then there started to be some decent competitive soccer, started putting teams in in the regional competitions, and then high school soccer started at the club level, and then it, it involved evolved in the uh, in the very late 80s into uh, actually a sanctioned sport in West Virginia, which a lot of people said was going to be the death of sports in the state of West Virginia. Didn't work out that way. And, um, and, and so we also had, there was an adult, a smaller adult group. And again, not 100%, but a, a large majority of those were people that were uh, from other countries that had grown up with the soccer uh, heritage um, that were here in the state um, for, for jobs or for education. And uh, so those, those, again, Morgantown, Charleston were the two pockets. Uh, but with a small state, you don't really have enough people to have two associations governing the sport. And there was conflicts and things going on. And so a bunch of us got together and said, look, why don't we just have a joint association? There weren't very many of them then at that time. There was, uh, there was North Texas. Um, and um, I'm not sure if, if Pennsylvania West was a joint state then. There were very few. And uh, so we talked to some people and, and we got together and it was, look, we want to make sure that the adults have autonomy to run their, their affairs and elect their officers. And we want the youth to do the same, but we want to have a common focus, you know, coaching and referee development and, and those kind of, of things and relationships with the Federation. And uh, so we, in 1987, we, we merged the two associations together and uh, started the West Virginia Soccer Association, and uh, that, you know, that was really when we started kind of moving together because everybody in the state was was working on the same the same page, the same level. So, take us, uh, you know, kind of pick up at that timeline. You were around at that point, being involved with with U.S. Soccer uh, as well, working with within West Virginia Soccer, correct? Yes, I, I attended my first uh, AGM at the Federation in 1984. So when you were when you were around U.S. soccer back then, this is obviously uh, pre World Cup, pre Major League Soccer, um, and and that's around the time that you're you're looking at you know the the uh, World Cup being awarded to to the U.S. Uh, what what was what was that like in terms of being around those conversations, hearing that you know because we're we're leading up to 2026, we know that we're getting uh, 2026 after missing out on 18 and 22. What what were some of the the, the conversations like back then in terms of uh, of looking at hey could could we maybe eventually host a World Cup? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, and I listened to your the first part of your, of your show today, and, you know, the way things are today and the way we wish things would be different, uh, go back into the 80s and there was nothing. There was basically the NASL had folded. There was no, there was, there was no really pro soccer to, to really say much about. Um, you had the, the youth, uh, youth association, you had the adult association, there, at that time, you know, there wasn't U.S. clubs. Awaso was was there, but they weren't. Um, they hadn't 
you know, come up on the national stage uh, the way they did uh, in the 90s. Uh, you know, that was, that, that was basically it. There was no pro council. There was no youth, or no uh, adult, or uh, excuse me, athlete council. Uh, you know, it was the adults and the youth, basically. Uh, and um, those were the votes. And, and it, was, it was kind of different. And you had some people, Warner Stricker was president, and you had some people um, that had some vision about creating a, um, a national program and for the World Cup. And, and back then, you know, some of the people like Sunil Galati was one of those people, a very young Sunil Galati, Richard Gross, Kevin Payne, and, and tons of other people. And uh, just started promoting games, trying to get some interest in in the sport and in the national team, and um, and then hey, you know, so that was tough. A lot of people really didn't really didn't care. A lot of people that were here from other countries, they cared about England, they cared about Germany, they cared about France, they cared about Brazil. The U.S. national team didn't mean anything to them, and so that was a process that basically took, you know, some work getting together. And uh, then the idea was, let's try for the World Cup. And people were, you know, crazy. We're never going to give the World Cup to, to the U.S. But some of the people at FIFA uh, and Werner Pricker and others in the United States um, saw the market, saw the potential of soccer in the United States and also the commercial end of it which was not a small part of that, and, um, you know, decided to uh, support the bid. The bid was put together, and you know, it, was, it was a huge celebration uh, when, when we were awarded the bid. Now, now, being around U.S. soccer as long as you have, I, I know that, that, that you have so many stories. You... you <laughs> you've seen a lot you you've you've heard a lot uh t tell us uh, one of the craziest stories that you've ever seen in terms of fifa or elections or or you know envelopes of cash there there's all of these there's all of these you know rumors out there and in and you in and people have heard like hey whispers of hey you know th th these were some crazy times back in the day with this that or the other with fifa or with other things what what's one of the craziest things you've seen in in being around the game uh back at that point well i guess the craziest the craziest time was you know after we had the world cup bid and we were coming up for the elections in i guess 92 um, and Werner Fricker was running, um, and a guy by the name of Paul Steele uh, from Maryland was going was running against um, against Werner. And um, but it was pretty much assumed that Werner was gonna was, was gonna win. And all of a sudden, we started hearing these rumors that FIFA um, was unhappy with the leadership, and um, they were gonna put uh, supported a candidate. So you know, you're looking at all the all the usual suspects, and they're like, "No, we're not running." And so all of a sudden, somebody who had been very uh, instrumental in the uh, LA Olympics, uh, Alan Rothenberg, was put forward as a candidate. Well, most of us had never had any interactions or, or knew Alan at all. 
but he was supported by by FIFA. And um, you know, Daniel, as you know, we talked back in, in Philadelphia with uh, about um, before the uh, uh, at the workshop uh, NCA a year ago, talking about the um, uh, the election and how it was crazy and all this, everything being said and all these you know dirty uh, uh, dirty tricks, whatever. I'm telling you, as I told you back then, it had nothing, didn't hold a candle to what happened back, back at that time. And um, yeah, there were, there were, there was pressures being put. Again, the youth and adult votes meant a lot more back then because there was no pro council, there was no athlete council. So they were every state association in the youth and the adult meant, you know, meant a lot as far as the votes were concerned. And um, there was. Um, I'm not saying they were threats, but because in West Virginia, obviously, we didn't have big cities. We weren't hosting international games. And at that time, the the host state association got made a lot more money off hosting international games than they do now. So there was some um, incentives for states that wanted to host international games and get some of that money to um, make sure the people that were in charge were happy with them. Let's put it that way. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, and and we, can, we can use our imaginations to go from there uh, when we look at incentives. So uh, let, I, I want to keep walking through the timeline for a minute because I, I, you have such a, a vast and, and, and expansive history in working within U.S. soccer for, for decades we come into the '90s and and we're we're heading into the World Cup. What was the, you know, for for the kids now who are looking at, oh, we're going to get to host the World Cup in 2026. What was the environment like in in building up to '94 in the early '90s in terms of uh, within the soccer community in in the soccer space, the state associations. You know, what was the conversation like? What was the mood like? You know what, what? What what was everyone expecting or hoping for uh, with the '94 World Cup? Well, uh, people were hoping that it, it would lead to an explosion in um, in the interest in soccer in, in the country and the support uh, for soccer from corporations and, and uh, other other entities. And um, but and what the federation did, and I, and I. I think they're they're going to do similar things this time around, uh, but they reached out to all the organizations again. At that time, you know, it was just the state associations pretty much. Now it's going to involve you know, U.S. clubs and AYSO and all the all the various organizations, um, USA and whatever. Um, but they reached out and they were liaisons in all the various areas, um, and they would reach out to the states in their area and say, you know, Hey, we need your help promoting this. We have some deals for tickets, we, you know, different things. And there was a real effort put out to promote the world cup to the local, the local communities, especially in areas that wouldn't be hosting games, but would have an interest and in maybe be able to drive to a game, uh, in, you know, in a two or three hour time frame. Uh, so that, that worked, out well there were you know we sold a lot of tickets in west virginia uh and most of the people went to dc from west virginia 
to see games. But we had people that had friends. I mean, my family and I went to Detroit to to see uh, to see games. We had people all over, basically all over the country, going to see games, depending on their vacation time or whatever. But uh, and that happened in other states. It happened around and got the interest up. And uh, but everybody bought in. You know, the the adult associations, the state, the, the youth associations, the joint associations. Everybody bought in. To let's promote this and it be good things. And at the same time, in the run-up, you had the women's winning the first World Cup for women, and so you had the start of the the women having some attention and getting some notice. Uh, and so you had not only did you have the men's uh, World Cup coming, but you had the women uh, being world champions. And so then you had all of a sudden you had all these bunch of girls that, hey, wow, girls are people. Girls can play soccer too. Because in a lot of the country, there wasn't a lot of girls soccer. And West Virginia was one of those places. And after after the 91 World Cup, um, girls soccer exploded in a lot of the country. And, and West Virginia was one of those places. So we we – Get towards the end of the '90s. Major League Soccer has has come in, in instead of the famous, uh, sometimes mythical Warner Fricker plan of promotion and relegation. Um, Sunil Gulati had actually way back when had had worked on a, a plan, or maybe it was part of Ficker, Fricker's plan to to have promotion and relegation. We get in into a, a world where Major League Soccer exists. It's struggling at the end of the 90s, going into the early 2000s. And U.S. soccer undergoes a what I would classify as a major governance restructure in terms of some of the councils and the way that the voting and representation works uh, today were, were, were changed at that point. Why did that happen, and and what were the conversations surrounding that movement to make those changes away from what you were talking about in terms of the adults and youth were, were the lion's share of voting ver- versus now where we've got multiple councils and fractures, segmentation within those councils? Well, Daniel, I don't think we have enough time to, to go into that history. From, the, from 1998, but real, basically what happened was when MLS got going, and, and for various reasons, um, they the model that was, was taken at the time was what people felt needed to happen in order to get people to invest the money. There were you know still franchises folding, and you had some, some of the big and NFL families like Hutz and others and, and Crafts and that, that put uh, – put money into the sport using their NFL stadiums um, to, to try to, to, to create something. And, and again, they felt this is the structure we have to have in order to control that. So it didn't go off the rails like NESL had gone off the rails. People just spending, killing the competition in the sport. So that, that happened back then. Um, And then there was a complaint and it was actually, filed by AYSO that the, the governance wasn't fair um, because 
those that had the most people had the most the most votes, and and so the USOC, um, who oversees the federation because of the national governing body status, uh, came in and basically said, right, "You got to fix this. You got to have one one person one vote. You got to work it out. Your athletes have to have 20% of vote in everything that has to do with the actual sport. Every committee, every group has to have 20% athlete representation. Um, and that's the way it is. You've got to do this or we're going to just decertify the Federation. Um, and that was serious. It was big. It was serious. And so what was developed was a structure of the youth, adult, and pro councils, each ending up with the same number of votes. The youth were going to have the most people. So there had to be multipliers to the adults would have the next uh, amount. They would they would be have a, a multiplier that would give them the same votes as the youth. The pros at that time had five or six people. I mean, they were was real small back then, and they had to have the same multiplier. Then you had the twenty percent athletes, which originally was thought the twenty percent of athletes were going to be part of each council. But then the USOC said, no, can't do it that way. The athletes have to have their own. And that kind of tipped things um, a little bit. Uh, but so we ended up with the athlete council with 20% and then the other, um, the other three councils with equal, equal uh, percentages plus the board of directors and you know, the, the, the group of, of other people added in there. And um, it was contentious. It was it was ugly. There was a um, there was a lot of shouting and yelling and things said and and uh, bad bad blood. Uh, but at the end, it was really one of those things. Is if we want to still be uh, a member of the USOC, we have to do this. And so I think for a lot of people, begrudgingly voted for for the the plan the way it was. Um, at that time, you know, things have evolved. I think I think none of us, at least I didn't, foresee the uh, the way the kind of political landscape would be now, um, with with the athletes and the pros uh, kind of having control over a lot of what goes on. Um, that was something that that uh, I I didn't I didn't see, and I don't think a lot of other people saw it. It involved didn't happen right away. It happened, you know, that was in 1998. So it's been it's been a long time for that to happen. But um, I think we saw that uh, pretty evident in the in the election uh, 2018. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, look, we saw it in the election in 2018. There's no doubt about it. I I, I saw it again this year um, at this year's AGM with some of the policy proposals and you know some things that were were not voted in and it was clear that there was a an alliance a block voting block uh with between the pro council and athlete council so basically it was kind of like hey if we don't if we don't like something we're just going to work together we'll 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 knock that out and uh you know so i you know i think that's been playing out not just last year but i think it's played out before and, and, and it obviously i think played out again this year i i want to i want to you know spend spend uh, a few minutes here talk, talking about West Virginia soccer today 
and in some of the the opportunities and the challenges that you guys have there in the state of West Virginia or as 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 you corrected me west by god virginia um <laughs> so g- give it give us uh, a little bit of insight what what is if you're a young boy or a young girl growing up in west virginia what is the opportunities what are the pathways for a player in your state to grow up to play the game and then try to rise to you know to develop as a player well there's there's a lot more opportunities like now than when my two boys were starting in in the in the 80s um because we have a lot of a lot more clubs we have some some pretty big clubs that play uh, a pretty good level of soccer around around the region uh we have some grassroots programs that are uh, really trying to uh, grow the game, get people interested, uh, educate coaches. Um, one of those is is the Town Valley Soccer League that your your friend and mine, Chris Kessel, uh, is the president of, and and they're doing a lot of things. We try to encourage people to get involved. You know, one of one of the different things about West Virginia, and you know, Chris Kessel is an example. You know, two years ago, I said, hey, how can I get involved? And I said, well, you know, you, you come along, get, get interested, get on, run for an office, get on the board. And he did. And um, he became president of his league, became a member of our state board. He's been, you know, not in every state can someone do that. Uh, we're, we're always looking for people and, and new ideas. So I think that's kind of thing. We have players now that are, that are playing in development academies in Philadelphia and in uh, Columbus. We have some, some girls playing, uh, I think in Minnesota. Um, you know, so the, the options are there. Um, we're having players that are getting recognized at the regional level. And we, we've had, I don't know how many kids take uh, European trips in the last few years with the region. We've started again, West Virginia for new for West Virginia, taking our Olympic development teams overseas, went to Scotland last year, went to Italy this year uh, with the boys and the girls. Uh, so those, those things are there. We have college soccer has continued to grow in this state. Just uh, I think all the small colleges in the state now have soccer programs. Uh, the, you know, Marshall University and Western Western University, the two division one schools, um, so we, we have opportunities for people to, um, to play and, and to uh, get better. The struggle is we still don't have a large enough number of people who played soccer as a, as a kid uh, who grew up in the sport to be coaches because, number one, a lot of our population moves away for jobs and other, other reasons. Uh, we still get an influx of people from other countries coming in that bring soccer with them. Uh, but we still have to educate a lot of parents who were like I was in 1981 that this is a soccer ball. And you kick it and it goes over there and it's a ball that goes inside the post. We have to, we have to educate those folks. And it's hard. And um, so we, we, that's where we need help. We, we, the, our association tries to support 
for local clubs and leagues. Um, one of the things that I think you know I'm not happy about with the Federation is with the new grassroots coaching courses. Uh, the Federation is charging $25 for everybody to take a course to them. And with the, you know, with the older, the, the uh, advanced, the, the professional coaches, the people that are making money coaching, I don't, I don't worry about that. But in our state, we still have a large majority of, of what I call mom and pop coaches who are coaching because their little Johnny or little Susie's team needs a coach. And if they want their child to play soccer, they're going to have to step up. So their first question is, okay, but I don't know anything. What do I do? And if we want them to go through the Federation courses, um, okay, you got to pay $25 to the Federation to take this course. And then it's going to cost you $15, $25 for the state because you know, we have to pay for the coach, the instructor, and we have to um, get the facility. And you know, there are costs to that. So what we've decided to do after trying with the Federation for a year or so to, to get some mediation on that, which they won't do, um, we just, our membership decided at our AGM uh, back in March that we would subsidize the local state costs of recreation level, grassroots level coaches taking the, the Federation uh, grassroots course courses. Uh, that was unanimously approved by our membership. It's going to cost us uh, some, some money, but um, they also voted for a fee increase. And, um, you know, that's something that I think in our state, if people know that we need that, and if we can't get the help we need from someplace else, then we're going to have to step up and do it ourselves. So educating coaches and parent education is a, is a big thing for, for, for American soccer. There, there are pockets, there are large pockets of what I would classify as soccer first culture within the country, but there are large swaths of the country, places like what you're describing there in, in West by God, Virginia, that, <laughs> um, you know, that still need to connect the dots, you know, on a, on a foundational level, fundamental level, uh, for the game. And, and you see that, you know, I, I was, I was, uh, having a conversation a couple of days ago uh, with a, a parent who was talking about their son in, in playing, he had played kind of a grassroots level, recreational type level play. And this was his first season playing, you know, in a club soccer environment. And, and she was commenting about the, the difference in, in the coaching. And I was like, well, that's what you're paying for. Um, in in a what my experience has been is that for every kind of you know setup where you you let's say you've got eight teams playing in a in a rec league or a you know a local league you might have one or two parents that understand the game and know the game and, and can do you know at, at least a, a, on a minimum level a decent job of communicating that and teaching the game to those kids but then you'll have six other parents who the first time that they've seen a soccer game was the game that they coached. And, um, and, and so that big discrepancy uh, between having, you know, one or two that, that could know the game, teach the game versus the parents who 
were were feeling a need and wanted to help but didn't really know what to do to help um it, it was probably why this parent had, had felt a little bit of frustration you know with 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 the kind of environment and and so i think what you're doing there in west virginia is so important in terms of providing more access and opportunity to education and uh parent education coaching education etc when when you guys are looking at west virginia from a state level and you're and you're looking at the adults you're looking at the youth um all the whole gamut but what what is the dream? What are you trying to build? What 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 is the goal as you lead as the executive director of West Virginia Soccer? What what is what are you trying to accomplish um, in, in your position there with West Virginia Soccer? Well, let, let me also just say that you know, our our state president Len Rogers um, is um, we're a hundred percent together on on doing these things, and he has the vision uh you know we've we've hosted eastern regional president's cup and national championship series several times and are doing it again this year uh and next year um you know bringing bringing soccer bringing the awareness of what's going on in the region to our area getting more government and and uh corporate support for the sport in the state uh, so what what we'd like to do is you know we want to have uh well, a, a situation where all our coaches have um, have a federation uh, license that are coaching in the competitive uh, travel, whatever you want to call it, club soccer area. Um, you know, we'd like to have a D license for everybody. Uh, we're getting that way, uh, but we have a room to go. We want all our coaches at the grassroots level to have some type of coach, coaching education, whether it's the, the federation uh, pathway or whether it's just, just a clinic to learn the basics of, of soccer, which we, we also provide for our members, and it, it, it's covered by their fee, membership fees. That we don't charge for those kind of courses, just like a couple hours in, you know, on a Saturday morning, come out and we'll have one of our instructors teach the under six folks, this is what you should be doing, that kind of thing. Um, we want that um, statewide. Uh, it's it's happening in some of the larger areas, but we've got to get it out into the into the hills and the hinterlands, um, where you know you've got to have people have to drive an hour and a half or two hours for their under 12 kids just to play another recreation game, you know, because that's the every kid that wants to play soccer in that community is is playing, and so it's, it's, it's small communities, uh, so we we hope. We hope to uh, to make that happen, and just to keep uh, giving our, our our kids the opportunities to uh, to, to try to help uh, advance the the total sport on the adult level, to get more people playing, uh, to to take parents, convert them into players, so then they have a more interest in the game. And uh, we have one uh, USL team in the state in Charleston. We'd like to have more more of that going on. And so people can see, hey, you know, we've got high school, we've got college, we have semi-pro, pro, pro uh, you know, here's what soccer can be for you for the rest of your life. I think that is that is so good. You know, when I when I've had conversations with people within the game, 
people on on the level same level of, as you working you know at a state level you know you get kind of a roundabout like well we'd like to make soccer better we'd like to, but the fact that you've got an idea is you can tell that you guys are are working down you know an objective and a goal and and that goal is is so important because at, at the at that level that grassroots level up into you know some of the travel and competitive that you were referring to having better educated leaders coaches parents um, will eventually lead to better development for players better environments for players uh, even for the parents themselves so I think that that you can tell that you know having a clear idea of what you want to do and 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 how you want to go about doing it is is so critical and and so I think that that's that is great. One of the things I've been doing is as we kind of wrap up here uh, with with guests recently is that I, I ask them and I'm going to ask you this the same type of question. If you were if you were president or 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 the czar, the king of of American soccer for a day, and you could do anything to to change or reform amend you know whatever you 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 have absolute authority for one day what would you do while you were in charge you know i think you asked me a similar question um this at the agm this this uh winter and i think my answer was i would create a time machine go back 30 years blow everything up and start over again um, and, you know, if there's a way, and I don't, if I knew it, I, I would be pushing it now, but there's got to be some way that we can get on the right track. We've got the youth fighting each other. We've got uh, some, somewhat in the adults. We've got, you know, youth adults versus pros and, and athletes. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We, we, have, to, we have to get ourselves together to promote the sport in the United States, not just our sport, not just West Virginia, not just youth, not just adults, not just, you know, MLS, whatever. And um, I would I would try to get some heads together. And I know ProWell with MLS is, is going to be one of the hardest things um, to happen without outside mandates. Um, but there's going to be some way we can get the the brighter lights of soccer and maybe from outside soccer in in this country together in a room and lock the door and say you got to fix this stuff uh, i just had to catch myself um and you know what? we're not gonna let you out till you fix it i don't know the answer daniel i i don't i mean i don't and i don't know anyone that does know the answer that because it's not easy we know where we'd like it to be but how do we get from where we've allowed it to go to where where it should be? That's the problem. We got to fix the youth landscape. But with the billions of dollars that's that's being put out there in the youth game, how do we do that? What's the? There's no easy answer. The answers are hard, and we have to we have to all understand we need to make the hard the hard choices. It's well, probably not what you want to hear, but that's. No, that, that's great because I think I think a lot of people who follow the game and 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 
in terms of some of the the behind the scenes of American soccer, not just surface level, you know, are always curious about, you know, well, why don't things change? And they are. They're very hard. There are a lot of things that are baked in. And, you know, I wish that, you know, just like asking that question, you could just snap your fingers and go in a time machine and, and head back 30 years and, and, and blow it all up and start over. I wish it were that easy. Uh, and, 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 you know, you and I both know it's not. And so kind of figuring that out, working through that is, is definitely uh, a challenge, but I think it's a, it's a worth worthwhile cause. And I know that, um, like Chris in, in your state, Chris Kessel, a friend of mine and friend of yours, um, you know, that, that there are others like him that, that are constantly trying to, to figure out ways to make it better locally where they are and also better on a national uh, level as well. So um, hopefully there will be more and more people that, that wake up to that uh, reality of your answer and, and join in, in working to figure out solutions. And I think that's probably, uh, you know, what needs to happen next is that more people need to start joining that conversation and, uh, coming, you know, coming together to figure out a way to make things better for their, their local area, but also the country at large. Uh, Dave, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, people can can connect with you on Twitter at S-E-D-A-W-G-40 uh, on Twitter and, and also uh, can, can find you through the West Virginia Soccer Association's website. Um, again, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for, for joining us, and we look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks. To get back again, I'll tell you the uh, USA men's versus Ajax story from uh, back in the day. Well, I look forward to having you back on to do that uh, and do and doing that soon. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you, Dan. That was Dave Lariba joining the show. Um, just a little tribute music here for him. Um, he he is a great storyteller and we could have spent all day just kind of going through the time machine having conversations and talking uh all kinds of things but um he is a good guy really good guy met him through the election last year working with eric winalda and um you know he's he's, he's working hard to try to make uh soccer better there in west virginia and uh so you know it's 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 really good to have him on the show and i look forward to having him back on we'll get more stories and more insight from him so it 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 is uh it's always a pleasure talking with dave he's a he's a riot so thanks for joining the show today thanks for for uh um tuning in each and every weekday at 9 a.m eastern um tomorrow we we have the pleasure of being joined by tommy uh muller nielsen from uh, he's, he's Danish and he's a scout for Manchester United. And I really look forward to having him on to kind of talk about what he's, what he's seeing in the game in Europe and, and the kind of players that they're looking to bring in uh, into to a team like Manchester United and kind of his background and all that. So I think it's going to be fascinating. And uh, so anyway, tune in tomorrow at 9 a.m. Eastern. You can watch always listen on DanielWorkman.com. Thanks for joining us. We will see you tomorrow.